Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 16. Today, we're going to talk about the idea of using inside language when you teach yoga. You know, inside language, terms used by people who are in the know and people who are familiar with how to do something. Are you using inside language when you teach and why does it even matter? Let's examine this idea further. I wanna start out with a little example, a couple of examples actually. So I want you to pretend you're on your yoga mat. I'm going to share a few cues with you and I want you to just let them land on your body. I'm going to give you two cues. One uses inside language and one does not. See if you can tell the difference. So here's the first one. Turn your back foot in 45 degrees versus dial in the back big toe. The second scenario, interlace your fingers behind your back. If you have tight shoulders, grab a strap. Versus, interlace your fingers behind your back, squeeze your shoulder blades together, and if you find you can't get movement in your shoulder blades, put a strap between your hands so you can. The third one, breathe into your hips versus take three deep breaths. So in each example here, what I did was first, I gave you the cue using inside language, things you'd have to know as a teacher or a practice student to do. Then I gave you in the second part of each example, the more basic, more easily understood phrase. Now, I want you to keep in mind, I'm not saying there is a right and a wrong here. I'm simply bringing up the idea of inside language and challenging you to think about how much you're using cues with your students that assume they know what you mean. So let's look a little further 
at each one of those examples I gave you. So the first one was turn your back foot in 45 degrees versus dial the back big toe in. So let's think about this in warrior one. We want the back foot turned into some degree to help the student internally rotate the back hip. This is going to facilitate the centering of the hips that we wanna see and we want them to experience. We know that if the back foot is turned out, that back hip will turn out too. So we want them to turn the back foot in. But when we ask them to turn it in 45 degrees, now we've introduced a variable that they might not be familiar with. What if they don't know what 45 degrees looks like? What if now they're just utterly focused on getting the right angle of the foot? What are they losing in the time that they're hyper-focused on the position of the back foot? So to make it more generalizable, we could say, turn your back foot in or dial the back big toe in. This gets the same effect as the other cue, but faster and in a way that's much more understandable by anyone. Now that they've processed that cue, they can be more present and aware to listen to the other things you're saying. All right, so let's look at the next one. Interlace, fingers behind, interlace your fingers behind your back, squeeze your shoulder blades together. If you can't get movement in your shoulder blades, put a strap between your hands so you can versus interlace your fingers behind your back. If you have tight shoulders, grab a strap. All right, so this is a good one because this comes up a lot. And you can think about it in, maybe you have them in a standing straddle, they're gonna interlace their fingers behind their back and fold forward. So again, try to avoid, as you're listening to these, reacting to what I'm saying and try to stay in the space of open mind. Because if you, say some of these things in this way, and I have too, you'll get defensive and you'll not hear anything else. So keep in mind that I'm not saying there's a right and a wrong. I'm just giving you a possible perspective from the student's point of view. And this comes in part from feedback I've gotten from students over the years. So I mean, it's not just coming from me. So again, in this one, when I say, interlace your fingers behind your back, if you have tight shoulders, grab a strap versus interlace your fingers behind the back, squeeze your shoulder blades together, and if you notice you can't get movement in your shoulder blades, put a strap between your hands so you can. So in this first example of interlace your fingers behind your back, if you have tight shoulders, grab a strap, I'm assuming they know what tight shoulders means and if it applies to them. And more importantly, the point of why I'm suggesting they use a strap in the first place and how it relates to the overall action of the pose is completely lost when I just say, if you have tight shoulders, grab a strap. So we have to understand some of the anatomy here in order to really get the big picture of this whole thing. So let's look at what's happening. We're asking people to interlace their fingers so they can bring their shoulder blades closer together. The interlacing is just to give them, let's say leverage, so to speak, to do that, right? So that when they interlace their fingers, they can get a little more of that grip of the shoulder blades squeezing in towards their spine. But it's the contraction of the rhomboids which happens as they adduct their scapula, that's the main focus, right? So the rhomboids are muscles that 
draw the shoulder blades closer together. And they run from the thoracic vertebra to the medial aspect of the scapula. And when they do their job, when they contract, those shoulder blades are gonna come closer together. So there they are trying to contract their rhomboids and they might have some weakness there. But if you haven't talked to them about the scapular adduction, so adduction is the anatomical action of moving closer to the middle, moving closer to the midline, not drawing the shoulder blades further apart, drawing them closer together. And if you haven't talked to them about scapular adduction, chances are they're focused on their fingers because that's what you're saying. You're saying interlace the fingers together. You're maybe not even saying anything about the shoulder blades. So if they are just focused on, um, well, and also, even if they aren't focused on the interlace of the fingers, do they understand that limited range of motion in the shoulders would be a reason to grab a strap? Most likely not. Most likely people don't think of the strap as a way to get more movement in the shoulder joint, in the shoulder blades, in that adduction plane. So the alternate way to cue it, interlace the fingers behind the back, squeeze your shoulder blades together. If you can't get movement in your shoulder blades, put a strap between your hands so you can. So now you're giving them the reason to use the strap is focused on creating the primary action. And if you want to throw in something extra, you can say, notice how you squeeze the shoulder blades together and you get that resulting stretch across your pectoral muscles. This shows the relationship between these two muscular groups and how when one is contracting, the other one is lengthening. And it's just as simple as that. I mean, you don't have to go into a whole academic discussion, but this allows you to educate your students about the full picture of why you're asking them to do, what it is you're asking them to do, and how the strap can be more helpful. So that's, you know, I'm not even in, these, in this example here, I'm telling them that the action of squeezing the shoulder blades together and saying that if they can't, to grab a strap, I'm not even bringing in the sensation of tight. I'm staying focused on the key action I want them to do, which has nothing to do with the fingers. All right, so let's look at the last one. Breathe into your hips versus take three deep breaths. So this could be anything. It could be breathe into your shoulders, breathe into the space between your shoulder blades, or any other body part you want them to quote unquote breathe into. Now, when you think about this as a newer student, would you get this? Most likely not. And I mean, when you break it down, how can you breathe into one part of the body more than another part, except for maybe something like your belly or your chest? But as a practice student, you might be able to somewhat get the kind of esoteric, somewhat spiritual connotation here. But as a newer student or someone who's distracted, not so much. This kind of cue assumes that students can appreciate a lot of the nuance that can happen in the application of awareness to breath and movement. Now, I am not suggesting that you dumb things down. I'm in part suggesting that you examine your word choice to see if you're using cues that assume people know yoga like you do. So, now that I've gone through those examples, I wanna talk a little bit about the justification. Like, why does it even matter? Why do we wanna stay away from inside language as much as we can? 
So I want to go now to um, a different topic that will call in some of these same themes. I've been reading a book, a business book on branding, uh, branding for your business. And in the book, the author talks about messaging that companies use to try to communicate their mission and value to their customers. And the author was talking about the importance of having the message be clear so it's easy for the customer to know if the product or service would be helpful for them. And it got me thinking as I was reading it about teaching yoga and how important it is for teachers to make our message clear. Are we communicating in a way that assumes our students know what we're talking about? Or are we assuming that the students in class are experienced maybe more than we think they are? And therefore, we're using phrases or cues or leaving things out because we assume they'll know what to do, right? A perfect example of that is, if Crow is in your practice, do it. Well, what about all the people in class who want to learn Crow and for whom it's not in their practice, but are willing to do it if you show them how? That's a perfect example of making an assumption. So this gets to the idea of using inside language when we teach and how important it is to do just the opposite. Teach in a way that everyone can understand. Why? Why? Why would we want to do that? Because then what you're teaching will have the greatest applicability to everyone in the room. As soon as we leave things out or use phrases and cues that only experienced people will understand, we cut off several of our students from fully experiencing the poses. And further, even students who do know what we're talking about may miss out because they're just overwhelmed and stressed out with life. Do you know how that feels when you're on the mat, you're, you're barely able to focus, you're tired, you're stressed, and all of a sudden the teacher is using phrases and maybe even a complicated sequence on top of it, and all you wanna do is run screaming from the room. Teachers, we must put ourselves in the minds of our students rather than teaching from a place that comes from us and our experience. Until we start doing this, we are only teaching from our own experience and often our ego, and we're missing out on a real chance to connect with our class. Now, sometimes this happens, and it's not our intention um, to cut ourselves off from our students. We just don't know any better. Maybe we don't really understand the cues ourselves. Maybe we heard cues from teachers that we admired and we just started using them without actually knowing what they meant. And my favorite one is, that's the way I was taught. Please think about that. Can we make a pact as teachers to avoid saying that? You know, when we say that's just the way I was taught, Think about how that defers our responsibility, our power as a teacher, and just gives it to somebody else. Yes, we were all taught as teachers by someone else. That is the path of a teacher. But to say that's the way I was taught as an excuse for why you're presenting something some way, when that way is being questioned is, let's just say there are other ways that you could present a rationale to the contrary. So what's our action plan here? What can we do? Because I don't wanna leave you with this uh, information without giving you something to potentially consider going forward. So first of all, let's think about context. Context is everything, as they say, in a lot of different things. 
I started out by saying there's no right or wrong. And you probably have opinions about the examples I gave and probably have opinions about this topic in general. And that's great. We can have a discussion about it and should, as teachers, talk about these things. This is in part what I hope this podcast does. It brings these topics out in the open to be discussed. So secondly, is there a risk? What's the risk to using inside language? Is it high risk? Because as teachers, we certainly wouldn't wanna teach in a risky way, right? So the risk of using inside language to the physical body is probably in most cases low, but in terms of connecting with your students, high. The more we talk in a way that requires they know more than they do, the more we risk losing them and their attention. And they most likely won't come to our classes as much. The more we can present things in a way that's easy to understand, the more we'll potentially grow our student base. Now, it's definitely more than just about cues, right? Building your student base takes into consideration a lot of factors, but this is one of them. Again, you know, it's really similar when I was talking about the branding idea for businesses. Think about it. If you go to someone's website and it's not clear in the first five or 10 seconds what role they play and how they can help you, chances are you're going to click away until you hit a website that's super clear on those two variables. What do you do and how can you help me? It's the same with our students. So actions you can take. Number one, be aware. This is one of the biggest things. Just listening to this topic is a big part of bringing more awareness to the cues you use. Number two, be sure you know the why behind every cue you use. And I know that's a big ask. Knowing the why helps you avoid using inside language because you can just talk to people. Inside language for me, is usually a red flag in that it makes me wonder if the teacher really knows the why behind the cue or if the teacher is just repeating what they heard. The more you know the why, the more you can just have a conversation with your students about the movement. If you don't know the why behind the cue, take courses, take trainings. You know, I have online courses, I have my Anatomy Facebook group, I have webinars that I do, this podcast. I mean, I have made it my mission to provide the why behind as many cues as possible by sharing the anatomy. And the why for many of these cues really lives in the anatomy. But I'm not saying just take my stuff, courses, et cetera, books and all that. Just get informed. Go out there and, and look for the information if you're unsure. And the last thing is to stick with action-based cues over other kinds of cues, especially ones that focus on sensation. The more we stay in the action zone, the greater applicability to all students and the less risk we run of using inside language. Why? Because we're just asking them to do stuff like press or squeeze or reach or root or twist and any other cue that's action oriented and easily understood. So this was a quick one, right? This was a quick podcast. You know, I've done quite a few over the past few months where I've interviewed people and those podcasts tend to run a little longer. This was a little shorter um, and I hope that, you know, this provides you with a quick way to supplement your education as a yoga teacher and that you like these kind of quick uh, formats as well. So we've reached the end of our podcast and a 
just two more things. Number one, I want to hear from you. I know you have opinions about this. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, be it off of my website or on iTunes, leave a comment. The last thing is visit the podcast page on my website for a link to my webinar on cues. This will walk you through the types of cues so you can be more aware of the kinds you're using and figure out if you're using a lot of inside language. When you visit the podcast page on my website, which is barebonesyoga.com, go to this episode and in the description, you'll see the link. I wanna thank you so much for listening and I look forward to hearing from you. Namaste.